please take your Bibles with me and open them to Colossians chapter 1 to verses 15 through 20. Hopefully by now your Bible just falls open to this passage. I know for myself, from a personal standpoint, um, I've really been thrilled with studying Colossians. I've enjoyed this um, short letter. It is rich in every way imaginable, and it has sustained me, and um, uh, God's brought about a, a good work personally in my own heart from this letter. I hope um, the same can be said about you. So we're back into verses 15 through 20, and we're building to the very end. Today we're going to be in the last portion of verse 18, and then all of verse 19 and 20. <clears throat> and although there are several applications that could be taken from these verses, they really need to be addressed together. They're, they're sharing or pointing us to one singular um, sort of subject. So far, we have found the Lord to be um, supreme. That's been the main point of the text. And He's been supreme in verse 15 as the image of the invisible God, the clearest revelation of God Himself. Also in verse 15 into verse 16 and 17, He's the Lord of creation, supreme in every way over creation. Verse 16, by Him, through Him, and for Him, all things were created. He reigns as Lord over all of these things. Verse 17, He even holds all things together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 even tells us, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Last week, verse 18, we highlighted that He's even the Lord of the church. The body that you and I as Christians are privileged to be a part of. Christ is our governor. He is the authority. He dictates to us what we are to do and what we are to believe and how we are to operate and so on and so forth. But He's also our life. He, he's the head that nourishes us and, and gives us um, sustenance and, and on and on and on. Well, today as we come to verse 18 through 20, we will consider that the Lord is Lord of new life. He's the Lord of new life. Paul has been building in these verses to this kind of crescendo point. Remember, the Colossian Christians are facing false teaching. And part of that false teaching, as is true for all false teaching, is they're saying that Jesus isn't quite sufficient enough for what you need. And what you need may be salvation, or it, or it may be spiritual enlightenment, or it may be hope or assurance for, for eternity. Whatever it is, Jesus isn't quite sufficient enough. And that's the main theme of all false teaching. So they tell you, you need rituals and you need works and you need practices and you need uh, secret divine things and, and on and on and on. Paul's writing to address this false teaching by elevating Christ, as we've established. And he's elevating Him again as the image of God, as Creator, as Lord of the church. And therefore, as the only thing we need for assurance for eternal life, the only hope that we need, to be made new in God is the only one we need for our future. You and I, church, we don't need to gain some secret wisdom or secret understanding or engage in some secret mystical practices to have our eternity in God secure. We need to cling to Christ. He is not only supreme, 
that He is entirely sufficient to give us the new life we so desperately need and to sustain us there for all eternity. So let the flock of God not be led astray, but let us cling to our Savior. Let us know that from Him comes everything we need. We do not have to chase down the path of the world to find hope, to be made new, to find satisfaction, to possess salvation. As we begin this text, let's uh, back up into verse 15 and read it all. <clears throat> bearing in mind that we'll spend our portion in 18, 19, and 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent or supreme. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's first consider Jesus as the founder of this new life that I've referenced. We begin with a unique word and a unique phrase that Paul uses. He calls Him the beginning. And we've encountered this concept before, uh, in some variation, if you go back to verse 15, the last portion of verse 15, we established that uh, being the firstborn of all creation doesn't mean Jesus is uh, the first created being, but that both He existed long before anything else ever existed. He's also supreme over all things in His pre-existence. If you look down in verse 17, we see this concept fleshed out a little bit more. He is before all things. Again, a phrase that references his supremacy, but also his chronology. He is existing before anything in creation ever existed. Not as a created being, but as a pre-existing God. Well, by the time we come to verse 18, we see Paul use this phrase again, or this concept reference again. He is the beginning, although Paul here is not being redundant. He's not even focusing necessarily on the supremacy of Christ or the chronology of Christ in that word, although we might say it's there as an underlying foundation because it's so prevalent in the rest of the text. Well, the, Really what Paul's getting out here, here in calling Christ the beginning has to do with His resurrection. Before, in verse 17 and 15, he refers to Christ as the beginning or being before all things or being the firstborn in a very broad and general sense. It's connected to creation. So in a very broad and general way, Christ is first. But by verse 18, he calls him the beginning explicitly in connection to his resurrection. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So something about his resurrection elevates him to this status of beginning that is not just a general way of being the beginning, 
But it is a very specific and narrow way of being the beginning. Have I lost you yet? Yeah. I was looking directly at you. All of that chaos to come down and say this. Christ being the beginning as referenced in verse 18 in another way could be translated as Christ being the founder. He is the beginning in the sense that He is the initiator. He is the beginning in the sense that He is the founder of whatever His resurrection brings about and accomplishes. He has founded something. Now, for structural purposes, let me just pause and say He is the founder of new life as this text will reveal, in both salvation and in the culmination of His kingdom. So in a salvific sense, in an eschatological sense, in a, in a salvation way, in an end time way, Christ is the founder of new life. But before we get to that point, let's pause and consider another question. How is He the founder of new life? And the answer is because he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, we see this phrase used already in verse 15 the firstborn of creation. And we've highlighted that Paul in that verse does not mean that he's created, but more so that he's the metaphorical firstborn of all creation, the heir of all things. The inheritance is his. He is supreme and ranks above all things. That's the intention of verse 15. As we come to verse 18, the word firstborn, unlike the word beginning, is concerned with chronology. The first from the dead. Now we know Paul doesn't mean this in a literal sense on one hand. Because many people have come back from the dead. So Christ isn't the first to come back from the dead. He Himself raised Lazarus. In numerous other places we read of He Himself raising children or servants back from the dead. Resurrection had happened before. And had even happened by His own hand. Yet, Paul's statement in verse 18 is not a false statement. He is the first from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. So what exactly does Paul mean? He means that Christ is the firstborn from the dead to conquer death. Lazarus dies again. In fact, every other resurrected individual, whether they be resurrected by an apostle like Paul or by Christ Himself, they die again. They are removed from the grave temporarily. And eventually, as is the course for all of us, they go back to the grave. Christ resurrects and never goes back to the grave. The resurrection of Christ is wholly, totally different. The resurrection of Jesus is one that is perpetually continuing on. Paul says it best in Romans chapter 6, verse 9. He says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, 
will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Lazarus and all the others who have been resurrected were temporarily resurrected. It was a temporary solution to an eternal problem. Christ's resurrection is permanent. It's an eternal solution to an eternal problem. Christ's resurrection is entirely different. He has been raised to a new kind of existence. A new kind of life. A new way of being that has never been experienced before. Christ's resurrection is one of conquering and victory. So we can say with verse 18 with Paul, Jesus is the beginning of a new life. He is the founder of something different. He is the founder of a new way of existing. Of a new way of being. You see, others might have resurrected. But Jesus is truly the first to resurrect. In a very permanent way. We might say He's the first among many brothers and sisters to enter into this new life that God has promised through Him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is... Um, writing his most exhaustive um, portion or, or chapter on um, the resurrection. And he says this in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is how he describes him. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this is how Christ's resurrection is also unique. He is the first fruits, the first among many who have perished. So that we have brothers and sisters in the past, and brothers and sisters in the present, and brothers and sisters in the future who will resurrect with Christ to this new way of living. He is the first fruits, He is the firstborn from the dead. You and I, we might taste the grave if Christ tarries. But the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, because He is resurrected, we will resurrect. Because He has secured and founded and gained a new life, then we who are united to Him in faith will have that new life. Christ is the founder, the beginning of a new way of living. A way where death no longer has dominion. Where death no longer has control. Once we are raised with Christ, we will also eternally be alive. Well, it's no wonder then that Paul goes on to say in verse 18, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything, He might be preeminent. He might be supreme. In every way imaginable, in every possible scenario, Paul's been building up to that statement right there. I want you to see, Colossian Christians, you need not turn anywhere else. Christ is supreme, and therefore Christ is sufficient. Jesus is all that you shall ever need, church. Jesus is all we shall ever need. He's the one who reveals God to us. He's the one who brings about creation and sustains it. He is the one who governs and gives life to the church. And He is the one who has 
secured a new life for us. God has delighted in making Him supreme. And in making Him supreme, God has delighted in making Him sufficient. This is a very important truth for us to grasp. We have established already from this letter and even from this passage that we are constantly under the threat of false teaching. And again, all false teaching threatens to devalue Jesus. So we are constantly under the threat from our own flesh and the world that we live in to look to something other than Christ. We are constantly pulled by sin to value sin more than Jesus. To value this world more than Jesus. To think that we must do something else to earn God's favor. It plagues the human soul. We would do well to remember that our Lord alone is sufficient. Our Lord alone has all that you need to live with God forever. Well, how is that possible? How is it possible not only that He rose from the dead in such a conquering, permanent way, and, and how, how is it possible that He's even supreme over all things? It can only be that He is God Himself. Verse 19. Remember, when we see this word for, we might also substitute it for the word because. So He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be supreme because for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Total, comprehensive fullness of God dwelling in His Son. In all of His glory, in all of His might, in all of His power, in all of His grandeur, the fullness of God exists in Jesus. And it's even more than that. Not only does the fullness of God exist in Christ, but the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. It was the delight of the Father to fill His Son. It was the joy of the Father to dwell in Christ. Now this is a bigger deal than what you and I might imagine. As we survey the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament, the majority of the Old Testament, when we read of God dwelling anywhere, we read of Him dwelling in what? The temple. God's dwelling place is the temple. Now all of a sudden, Paul will write and say God's dwelling place is with Jesus. It's a major statement. Here is one who is elevated beyond any mere man. He is the one with the presence of God delightfully dwelling within Him. So in Him, all the fullness of God is pleased to exist so that those of us who are united to Him might also have the fullness of God in us. Look in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians. For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Again, it screams to us, you need not look anywhere else. 
You need not run to anyone else or any other object or any other ritual or practice. You must only cling to Christ and there you will have all that you need. There you will be united to the fullness of God Himself. There you will be promised and guaranteed and marked out for this new life that He's founded. This this life that conquers the dominion of death. This life that exists in victory and in fullness and in delight. Oh church, what a wondrous truth we have. That Christ has the fullness of God shining through Him. Well, not only is our Lord the founder of new life, He's also the giver of new life. We see this structure playing out in verse 19 and 20 that's important for us to take note of. The first part is in verse 19. The second part is in verse 20. Verse 19, we see the structure in Him to dwell. Verse 20, we see the structure through Him to reconcile. And implied in all of that is the fullness of God. So verse 19 reads, In Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it's implied in verse 20. Through Him, the fullness of God was pleased to reconcile. God delighted and desired and providentially planned to reconcile the world to Christ by fully enabling Him to bring about such reconciliation. Now this word reconcile, as I referenced er earlier, on one hand refers to humanity. God through Christ is reconciling us to Himself. He's reestablishing the relationship that He intended to have with His creation. He's bringing about a connection that wasn't there before. And so He does that through His Son. He reconciles us to Jesus. We see this um, also written out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul has made this statement or a similar statement before. The same concept. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, what Paul is saying here in both of these passages is here's Jesus, the supreme and sufficient founder of a new life and the supreme and sufficient giver of a new life. And He gives that new life by reconciling you to God. By connecting you to God and giving you a relationship to God. By establishing you in union with God. That's incredibly important for you and I. Let's flip over to Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, real quickly. Verse 59, uh, chapter 59. 
Let's look in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. Verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. It's not that God cannot save. It's not that God cannot hear. It's that your sins have made a separation between you and God. It's that your sins have removed you from His presence. That He turns His face and He doesn't listen to you. It's because your hands are covered with blood. Because you hate your brother in your heart. It's because your, your heart is adulterous. Because you lust with your eyes. It's because your lips... They, they speak lies. It's because you invent and think of and mutter wickedness. It's because you blaspheme God. Because sin so corrodes and occupies your soul, you are separated from the Creator. So when we come to Colossians chapter 1 and we read that the fullness of God exists in this man Jesus and that through Him He reconciles us to Himself, we are left in Humble thanksgiving. And, and humility. And perhaps adoration. And even still, simple awe. That this God would delight in feeling His Son. So that even through His Son, He might bring us sinful creatures to Himself. Oh church, our sins have made a separation between us and our God. But God has bridged the separation with His Son. To bring us to Himself. So that through Christ, we might be reconciled. We might have a relationship with God. And in having a relationship with God, we might be made new you realize the answer to all of your problems is that you need to be made new. The answer to every sinful habit, every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful desire, every sinful look is not forming new habits and it's not doing rituals or reading good books. It's that you need to be made new in Christ. That's the only solution to our sinful hearts. And the only way to be made new is by being reconciled to God through Christ. And wouldn't you know it? Christ delights in reconciling. Sinners to God. He does so freely and generously. He came for such an expressed purpose. It's the heart of the Father to reconcile through His Son. So His Son comes in the fullness of the Father to reconcile sinful humanity to Himself. But Paul doesn't allow us to stop there. If you've 
taken notice in verse 20. As the passage progresses, it extends beyond simply reconciling humanity. Paul actually says he was filled with the fullness of God who through Him was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven. Now you and I are certainly included in that statement. And we most quickly run there. We want that, desperately need that reconciliation, so we read ourselves into that text. But in the context of this passage, and in the usage of Paul's language in other places, we know what he means when he says all things. It's a broad statement. He means, quite literally, all things in the created order. This is the fifth time, and the final time we've seen this phrase in these Verses 15 through 20. And in every time in this context, he's referencing it and using the phrase as broadly as he might to include all of creation. Then, furthermore, in verse 20, he uses the phrase, whether on earth or in heaven. We see a semblance of that again in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. So Paul progresses through verse 20, talking about reconciliation through Christ to God. And he seems to broaden it out as wide as he can to include all things, things on earth, things in heaven. And it's quite puzzling. Things on earth we um, more easily understand. It's probably where we see and include ourselves, right? We live in this wicked world. And we are wicked ourselves, and we know we need to be reconciled to God, so God is reconciling things on earth, that's you and I. But what does Paul mean by things in heaven? We know he doesn't just mean, and perhaps in my view, doesn't mean angels at all, or the heavenly throne and dwelling place of God. Just logic tells us that. Angels have no need to be reconciled to God. The fallen angels are not offered redemption, for one. And the angels that are in heaven have not fallen. They need no redemption or reconciliation. They dwell with God right now. So I don't think Paul is being literal in using the terms earth and heaven, just like I don't think he was being literal in verse 16 in using the terms earth and heaven. I think, again, he's meaning to be broad. In other words, we might say it this way. Christ is reconciling all creation to God. Look over in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When Adam sinned, he thrust all of creation into sin. And the effects of sin rapidly spread far and wide almost in an instant. And God is reconciling not only humanity to Himself, but all things to Himself. In one sense, we might say Christ is restoring humanity's relationship to God. And He's restoring creation's newness to God. He reconciles humanity and He restores creation. This is the end time or culmination sense that I referenced earlier. In Christ, one day, all things will be made new. The founder of new life has His, his reach going beyond just salvation of humanity, extending into a new heaven and a new earth. Into new everything. God is bringing about a full recreation. And why not? He is, after all, the creator of all things, is He not? As we read in verse 15, 16, and 17. The one who has the power to create out of nothing has the power to recreate in everything and make it new. And so He is. And here we have this beautiful and glorious picture. Here's the founder of a new life who secured a new life through His resurrection. And He's giving that new life to humanity and all of creation. One day, everything will be made right. This is the, this is the um, already but not yet motive of the New Testament. This new life is already secured for you and I if we have been born again in Christ. We are already made new in one sense. But there's also a not yet element to this. All creation is not yet made new. But it will be. And what will bring it about? The Lord Jesus Himself. Christ, in all of His glory, is reconciling us and everything else to our rightful place and our rightful relationship to the God of all creation. There is no false teacher that should come in and breathe lies to us that says anything contrary to such truths. Christ alone is not only sufficient, but is doing this very thing. How, how is He doing this? This is the last phrase of verse 20. How has He done this? How is He doing this? By making peace by the blood of His cross. At the cross of Christ, this uh, very powerful cosmic moment takes place. Mysteries that you and I just cannot fathom and will not fathom. Infinite things are happening when Jesus is being crucified. But the peace of this new life that you and I so desperately need, that all of creation needs, was secured as Christ gave up His life. Jesus died 
Precisely so that He might be the firstborn from the dead. Precisely so that He might make a new way to live and be with God. Precisely so that you and I might have access to God and all things one day be made right. Christ gave Himself up as the right, true, sufficient sacrifice to give us newness and to promise newness and rightness in a future. One thing I think about and one phrase I love is at the end of Psalm chapter 1. I've shared this with you before. At the very end of Psalm chapter 1, it says the, the very way of the wicked will perish. Not just the wicked, but the way of wickedness. The very thought and practice of evil. The very methods of ungodliness will be swept away by God. And everything will be made right. And the congregation of the righteous will live before their God in His presence, continually worshiping Him. And everything in all of that creation will be good. There will be no ounce of sin or darkness, only perfection, only holiness, only righteousness. And how is that made possible? Because Christ died and rose again. Pave the way, the path to new life with God. These false teachers are plaguing this Colossian church. They're threatening them at the very least with errant doctrine. So what does Paul do? He elevates the Lord Jesus and he continues to elevate Him. And he continues to elevate Him. And he says, you want to know God? You look to Jesus. You want to know about the power of God? Look to Jesus. You want to know how to exist and where you get your life as a church? It's in Jesus. And you want to know your hope for a future? You want to know the answer and the way to new life? It's in Jesus. For you and for all of creation. We too ought to have our affections and our understanding of Christ from this passage elevated significantly to the highest reaches of our comprehension. Christ is supreme church and sufficient for all that we need. Our task, our challenge, is to cling to Him alone. Unbeliever, believe on Christ. Look to this Jesus that's spelled out in His Word. Don't look to an imagination of Jesus or a worldly portrayal of Jesus. Look to the Lord as He's defined by His Scriptures. And believe in Him. It's not an invitation, it's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus. You have no other life. and You have no other hope. And the death that awaits all humanity will be your final stop until you're resurrected to an eternal death. Believe on Christ if you want to be saved. And Christian, cling to Christ now that you are saved. And let nothing wedge Him away from you. Beg for Him 
to hold you tightly. Run to His Word and spend time with Him in prayer. For nothing else in all of creation will reconcile us to God. And once reconciled to God, nothing else in all of creation is needed. Rest in and enjoy the love and new life of your Savior. Father, your word is precious to us because it tells us who you are. It tells us what you expect of us. You expect the world to repent of sin and come to you. You call us out to be saved, to be reconciled through your Son. You also tell us that you are making all things right. Lord Jesus, because you died and because you resurrected, there's a new life on the horizon. You are the founder of that new life. You are also the giver of that new life. We thank you that you're restoring creation, that you're going to make all things right. And we thank you even more, O oh Lord, that You're making us right with God. Press upon the hearts of the un, uh, unconverted this morning that they need a Savior, that they need You, and that they should come to You in faith for salvation today. And for Your children, O oh God, help us to see You in all Your glory and to stand in gratitude and humility, and amazement, and wonder at who You are and what You've done for us. You are all we need. Our only and final hope. Let us not be led astray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.